The following podcast is brought to you by the Village Zendo. For more information, visit villagezendo.org. So um, it's really uh, lovely to see all of you, and I just feel great appreciation for your support this morning. And it's lovely to see um, our Village Zendo in New York City. all of our members sitting there this morning. So I'm Jisei, a senior student at the Village Zendo, and I'm speaking from Brantford, Connecticut. Um, I threw the window wide open um, to start sitting and just felt kind of a nice, cool breeze and just the beautiful, uh, heartwarming uh, chatter of birds outside, which gave me a tremendous amount of uh, joy. Um, So two weeks ago, um, my oldest son sent a text from Portland, Oregon. And I've been following a thread of images and thoughts um, ever since in thinking about this talk. So his text included a few photos of his backyard in the foothills north of Portland in an area called Forest Park. It was only just a few weeks earlier that I had been visiting him and his family. And when I arrived uh, in early March, there were little blossoms uh, that appeared at the end of branches. And by the third week in March, um, spring was just a riot of color. Cherry blossoms in full bloom and camellias, rhododendrons, japonica, daffodils. But on this uh, April day, when my son sent photos, a blizzard was raging, unheard of in April. There was a foot of snow on the ground. On this spring day, Chris and his family were at home having a snow day. Uh, My grandson's uh, daycare was closed. One photo that Chris sent was of a gigantic tree in the backyard that had snapped into at the sight line of a power line. The top half had miraculously jumped over a power line and crashed to the ground. When Chris and I talked later, he said he was amazed that they hadn't lost power. Another photo in the backyard showed a pink magnolia tree in full bloom, uprooted, snapped in two on the ground. And the words in Chris's text were, magnolia casualties. And those two words were followed by two dots with an inverted hyphen, the symbol for a sad face. He had lost a friend and was sad. I thought about impermanence, how the physical landscape we live in and the landscape of our lives changes. Right? I thought about Chris's sadness and sent uh, a text um, responding. So there's suffering, the first noble truth in Buddhism. 
permanence and change. And in the veriest earliest uh, days and years of life, challenges uh, come forward. A few months ago, my grandson in New Hampshire moved from one a one-year-old classroom to a two-year-old classroom in his daycare facility. He was upset and distraught, grumpy and unmanageable for a couple of weeks. He's adjusted now, but back then, every day when my son took him into the building, he would cry and break away, running towards his old classroom, friends, and teachers running towards what was known and familiar. And then just recently, my grandson in Portland, Oregon, was sad and struggling, and maybe he still is, when his sibling, little sister, was born, and the family dynamics changed. He was no longer the center of attention, and he didn't like it one bit. And... I experienced very difficult emotions uh, when my husband and I moved to a state, new state and locale less than a year ago. I felt a great no in my gut, no to the nearby highway and its constant highway drone, no to the urban scene and its paucity of trees and wildlife. I missed the farm field that I had left with its weeds and grazing deer. Where had all the birds gone, I asked. The chirping that I used to wake up to in the early morning dusk. And the bog sounds at night from the vernal pond. I felt sad. And yet so grateful to have a practice, a sangha, teachers. It was a great comfort um, to have a place, right, for me to know where to turn to for support. I sat Zazen, I showed up online, and met with uh, teachers uh, in interview. And I learned a lot from the experience. Um, you know, our uh, difficulties are our opportunities for growth. During that period, I looked at what I considered were the requirements for my happiness, what I was attached to. I reminded myself that everything changes. I reminded myself, uh, I thought of the lines in the Faith Mind poem, which um, tell us not to uh, pick or choose. Uh, I encouraged myself. Could I be curious about this new terrain? Be surprised. Could I have an open mind? Balance. Uh, look at the options. Choose a natural response. Uh, appropriate response. Maybe not a perfect response to whatever was coming up. Could I stop trying to control and allow my life and purpose to come to me? 
So I recently uh, heard online a talk uh, by Pema Chodron. And uh, in it, she talked about a difficult time she was going through probably quite a while ago. And a man said to her, don't move away. And this is what I have learned, what is true for me, from my experience, that we need to go through, not bypass difficult emotions. Sitting with difficult emotions transforms difficulty, bringing insight and opportunity for learning and growth. I have experienced greater balance and stability over the years. Uh, what I'm talking about is becoming more myself, more comfortable with all my foibles, doubts, and shortcomings, which uh, there are many. Um, Zazen offers us a never-ending uh, process of peeling away the layers. It's a great relief not to maintain a facade. Not that I still don't do that, at least easing up a bit. I read a children's book recently that I thought was wonderful. And uh, it goes by the uh, title of, What's Wrong, Little Pookie? It's by Sandra Boynton. There's a sad little baby boy and her toddler and a caring mother. The mother sees that her son is sad and keeps asking questions. Little Pookie, what's the matter? Is it this? Is it that? Little Pookie doesn't really know why he's sad and he never is able to tell her. But at the end, she takes him in her arms and he snuggles in her lap. I think this is really a wonderful book for parents because it shows them how to pay attention and hold their children and acknowledge their emotions. Um, and I think this is really the opportunity we have in Zazen. We pay attention. We investigate, and we learn to hold ourselves. And then holding ourselves, we, we actually learn to hold others. Holding is at the heart of compassion. I remember once a number of years ago, Roshi Enkyo said in a talk, self-compassion is compassion for others. When we can hold ourselves, there is balance, stability, and choice in how we respond to whatever is happening in the moment. We allow ourselves to be more fully human. So there's a case um, that I'm going to look at today. Um, it's case 37 in the gateless gate, the oak tree in the garden. 
Um, this case also uh, appears in the Book of Serenity, um, as Zhao Zhao's, I might not pronounce it right, uh, cypress tree, and also in the Book of Equanimity, uh, Joshu's cypress tree. So the case. A monk asked Joshu, what is the meaning of the patriarchs coming from the West? Joshu answered, the oak tree in the front garden. And let's just begin with a little background. What is the meaning of the patriarchs coming from the West? This question is often asked and well known in uh, Zen cases and stories, and I'm sure, sure that many of you are familiar with it. It refers to Bodhidharma, who was regarded as the first patriarch of Zen in China. He came all the way by ship from India to South China and then moved to Northern China, where he stayed for nine years. It is said that he faced the wall for nine years. He, he rejected scholastic approaches to Buddhism and insisted on the primary importance of the realization experience, direct experience. The question, what is the meaning of Bodhidharma's coming to the West, is generally understood as asking, what is the truth of Zen, the essence of Zen? Joshu is one of the most well-known of Zen masters. He lived toward the end of the Tang Dynasty. We know him in another uh, famous and terse koan, number one in the Mumon Khan, Joshu's Mu. Mumon reports the people who described Joshu's Zen said, his lips give off light. He was greatly respected. He was 58 when his teacher Nansen died. He went on pilgrimage four years later for about 20 years. Shibiyama writes, he went on pilgrimage with the determination. Even a seven-year-old child, if he is greater than I am, I'll ask him to teach me. Even a hundred-year-old man, if I am greater than he is, I'll teach him. He had that kind of humility and commitment. And he, it is, he lived, it is said, to the ripe age of 120 years old. Dogen Zenji, um, our founder, wrote a whole chapter in the Shobogenzo on the cypress tree, on the cypress tree. And what stood out for me was what Dogen highlighted about Joshu. Dogen said his abbacy was unique. And he wrote that Joshu said one day, and I'll quote, with an empty stomach, 
I look at smoke rising from nearby kitchens. Having bidden farewell to dumplings and steamed bread last year, my mouth waters thinking of them. There is little room for mindfulness, but much for despair. From a hundred neighboring houses, no one gives to the monastery. Visitors come for tea, but not finding a treat, they leave unhappy. Dogen paints a bleak picture of Joshu's monastery. There was no grain in the gruel, no lanterns lit at night, no charcoal burned in winter. It was a pitiable life for old age. And Dogen writes at another time that Joshu said, reflecting on home leavers in the world, I wonder how many abbots like myself have only broken bamboo strips on a dirty bed. My pillow of woven twigs lacks a cover. There is no incense to offer to the sacred image. Only the smell of cow dung rises from the incense bowl. So I think, you know, we can experience in Joshu's words a real person, honesty, truth, no sugarcoating, his despair and conditions, how he sees the uh, neighboring community that he serves. Dogen admires and holds up Joshu's persistence, his effort, commitment, continuation in the way despite horrible conditions. And Dogen writes, the pure practice of the old Buddha was like this. Nowadays, we who follow his teaching admire his pure practice, although we cannot come up to Joshin's standard, Joshu's standard. We keep in mind longing for the eight ancient way. So, how do we encounter the oak tree, this oak tree? So, dropping your eyes, perhaps, lowering, softening your gaze. Can you see the oak tree in your mind's eye? An oak tree in the garden? Now, a tiny sapling. Now, a tall, strong, vibrant tree with many branches reaching towards the sky. Now, an old, gnarly, twisted tree with misshapen limbs, missing limbs, deep, grooved, rough bark bent over. Roots deep in the soil form a tender network of root threads communicating with other trees close and far away. You might say an Avalokiteshvara 
compassion network. I have read that trees can send water underground through this underground root system to trees experiencing drought, that they send antibodies to help trees with disease. Can you see the tree in the garden as the tree of life in all its seasons and cycles of arriving and departing? The infinite forms of life that depend on the tree and that the tree depends on. The seasons, spring awakening earth flowers, summer full blooms and greenery maturation, autumn red, yellow, and dried leaves falling, winter hibernation stripped bare underground chrysalis. Sky, sun, moon, stars, cosmos, air breathing shared destiny, buds forming, full bloomed and petals on the ground. Can you see that you are the tree? And it is you in all its seasons and manifestations, sadness and joy. It is you, specific you, and also the inner being tree of all time being. There is no way to speak about this. Bodhidharma would walk away disgusted if he could hear these words. He's probably walking away right now, leaving the country. John Muir, Muir, I'm not Muir, the conservationist, wrote, and I quote, Between every two pine trees, there is a door leading to a new way of life. We notice when the landscape changes. Someone speaks the truth. We listen, we hear. Someone takes a backward step and holds up a light to look within, investigate, gain insight, reaches for sun, stars, and moon. Folks march together in a Black Lives Matter march. A newborn baby takes her first breath outside the womb and cries. An aid worker delivers food to a bombed out town in Ukraine. You look and exchange smiles at the cashier at Starbucks. Letters written and exchanged with an incarcerated person. Support for a refugee family sitting at the bedside of a person dying. Magnolia tree falls, dissolves into earth soil, nourishing, feeding, seeding generations to come.
and I'll end with the poem Kinship by Ursula Gwynn. Very slowly burning, the big forest tree stands in the slight hollow of the snow, melted around it by the mild, long heat of its being and its will to be root, trunk, branch, leaf, and no earth, dark, sun, light, wind, touch, bird, song. Rootless and restless and warm-blooded, we blaze in the flare that blinds us to that slow, tall, fraternal fire of life, as strong now as in the seedling two centuries ago. Thank you.